So uh, this afternoon we'll be talking about mindfulness in the therapy relationship. And uh, by way of beginning, I'd like to follow up a little bit on yesterday's talk about hindrances and some of the obstacles and difficulties that we encounter as therapists by reading to you a story which was written by a dear friend, uh, Elissa Eli, who's a psychiatrist, and she also uh, writes columns for the Boston Globe. And she uh, was asked to uh, submit a chapter on the compassionate therapist to this book that I'm editing right now called Compassion and Wisdom in Psychotherapy. Look for it, where all fine books are sold. <laughs> Trudy uh, submitted a wonderful chapter on mindful par- on uh, compassion, wisdom, and parenting. Anyhow, uh, the, um, the requested length of, of the chapters was um, 16 pages, and um, Alyssa gave us six pages, but wonderful six pages. So I'd like to read it to you, her story. Two nights a week, I visit a homeless shelter. (coughs) Many of the patients hear voices, and sometimes they believe they're being punished for crimes they never committed. They live in terror of horrific events that will will not happen to them, and sometimes they can't forget horrific events that have happened to them. I prescribe medications, hold their hands metaphorically, admire their strengths, and imply that if they just hold on, if they take their meds, come to see their therapist regularly, stay away from substances, their symptoms will diminish and their lives will improve. But I know this is not always so. This is a story about a shelter patient. It begins with a newspaper piece I wrote about him. His full-scale IQ was under 70. He didn't drink or use drugs, but he did have a hard time controlling his scratch tickets, lottery tickets. When he came up all numbers, in other words, when he won, he would treat the very sudden friends around him to Chinese dinner and sometimes a movie in the Cineplex. He was waiting for services from the state. Each morning, he walked across the bridge to a local arboretum. He wandered all day doing isometric exercises, watching birds, (coughs) and then he walked back to the shelter. Nature delighted him. The shelter agitated and intimidated him. His hands were large and his arms were like pipes from all the push-ups he did. Walls and garbage cans suffered. Afterwards, he was full of remorse. I never want to take these hands out of my pants and hit someone again, ma'am, he said after each misdeed. Willingly, he took his medication for his anger. Social services had been slow in coming. The Department of Mental Health wasn't interested in someone with a history of hospitalization, suicide attempts, or psychoses. On the basis of his mildly low IQ, we thought he might be better served by an agency for mental retardation. Weeks passed after the application was submitted, and then it was rejected without explanation. An administrator's voice somewhere told us that the patient 
was entitled to write a detailed letter of rebuttal on behalf of himself, which would serve as an appeal. It seemed a contradiction to write a highly sophisticated document defending one's own incapacity, but one cannot argue with the administrative mysteries of the state. He continued to do his push-ups, take his anger pills, walk outside except <coughs> on frigid winter days. He was trying to treat himself, but then he began to slide backwards, shoving garbage cans, threatening bunk mates. He took his large hands out of his pants often. One night we brought him into the office. We needed to tell him about the, about the rebuttal we had helped him write had been rejected, and that he had still not been accepted for housing or treatment programs and that no change was anticipated. We had interrupted him in the middle of dinner. He carried an ice cream cup with him and sat eating it slowly. To prolong the telling of bad news, we asked about his day. I was in the park, he said. I do my push-ups there. I like, this, I like to smell the trees in the morning and watch the bugs. There's a hawk's nest I found. One of the hawks, uh, red-tailed, that's a woman. The white-tailed, that's the guy. He's a titch bigger. He was proud of his knowledge. You know what, ma'am? I seen the same white-tailed hawk right here at dinner time. he said. He flies across the bridge to this place looking for pigeons. That's a steak dinner to them birds. You get nothing but feathers when they're done. Standing up, he directed our gaze with an ice cream spoon out the window. You got to watch that tree at dinner time, he said. It's beautiful. It makes me feel lucky. He stretched out his pipe arms. Oh, yes, ma'am, he said, remembering, I feel lucky. I wrote a profile about him for the local paper. The piece was a poem, not in execution, but in subject. And the response was uplifting. Readers felt they were taking part in a redemptive moment. They were left with an irresistible image, peaceful nature savant, gesturing with his plastic spoon at the hawks. Briefly, he enjoyed a state of semi-fame. It was like coming up all numbers. That was the end of the story I wrote, but it wasn't the end of the story he lived. A few weeks later, a woman in the shelter accused him of fondling her breast. No one witnessed it. She'd made numerous similar occasions before about other men, accusations, but these are times when allegations carry heavy weight and he was barred from the shelter. He was unable to comprehend what it meant to be barred. The concept made no sense to him. Our shelter was the home he knew. And so for the first few days, he slept on a bench outside the front door, begging staff to let him in. Eventually, he made his way to the city hospital emergency room and begged them to send him back to us. All he wanted was to take his anger pills, do his push-ups in the park, and, wa and wander with avian knowledge. Finally, he disappeared. We hoped he'd found his way to another shelter, but we never heard. We grew busy with a hundred other homeless men. About a year later, I got a call from a nurse practitioner. She was consulting to a nursing home behavioral unit. Our patient had been admitted in a nearly catatonic state. He gave the shelter as his home address. The nurse described the fit, lucky man we had known as stiff, 
sedated and hostile, he was also deadliest of chart terms, behaviorally inappropriate, masturbating in the hallways. This behavior was all the staff had to know him. He was overcome by imprisonment, inarticulation, and anxiety, and his simple-minded panic had chosen exactly the wrong expression. As it happened, the nurse practitioner had read the piece I wrote about him. She would never have recognized this poetic man in this one. She called several times over the next months, bless her, to consult. His behaviors had not lessened. He was wearing an ankle bracelet that beeped when he wandered through the ward door. He was not allowed outside the building, onto open land, or near the birds that were his best treatment. When the nursing home was scheduled for closure, she called one last time. He had not been reassigned yet, and she didn't know where he would be transferred. It's a shame people don't know what happens next in these stories, she told me one day. You ought to write that, too. After the shelter barred him, he had disappeared from our view, then emerged briefly, just long enough to be sighted and misunderstood, and then disappeared again. Yet all this time, in and out of our sight and our awareness, he was still alive, growing more forsaken and less understood. His life, beyond our view, continued. And then the nurse disappeared, too. Four years after he had first described his luckiness to us, a letter arrived from a neurology clinic in another part of the state. The envelope ought to have been thrown out. The name on it was so old, but by good luck, someone at the front desk had recognized it and passed it on to us. Apparently, he was still giving the shelter as his home address. The consultation inside chilled the spirit. It had been written as if there was no person left in this patient. There was not a single quotation, not even a physical description of him. You got the feeling that the neurologist was a little at the end of his rope. He wrote without any history of the man. He had no history whatsoever, and there was no way to understand his downward trajectory. It was like a cold case in homicide. The only conclusion that could be drawn, and drawn by observation alone, was that his target behaviors had worsened. The plan, therefore, would be to increase the medications. We call the neurologist. Our patient is living in a group home now. He is a complete cipher, incomprehensible, identified only by his ongoing problem behaviors. No one wants to take a chance on lowering his medication. No one would dream of letting him walk outside. The published and admired lucky man, the bird-loving man, is unrecognizable. The person may have ceased to exist. We sent our records to the clinic, all the ones we had, so they would know the patient now as we had known him. We also sent a copy of the old newspaper piece, hoping it would inspire them to treat him with tenderness, exert a VIP effect, humanize him, we had lost sight of him again, but again his life had continued. We lose sight of patients, but their lives go on. Even this is not the end of his story. 
It's only the end of the story I'm writing. Alyssa adds, sometimes what we do is as simple as listening. Sometimes what we do should even be simpler, reminding others of who the unrecognizable patient is. Patients, therapists, neighbors, family, we are all snapshots unknown to each other in our fullness. Most of us endure lives of partial recognition because survival does not hinge on it. But now and then it does. So this is what we do, you know, we recognize that when we create a compassionate presence, what are we doing, you know? What are we, what are we looking for? Who are we, you know? It's a very stirring story, it makes me cry every time. Yeah. Um, so, Would you like to share a few thoughts about the? We can take five minutes and talk about it. What the story may mean to you. My first internship at Camarillo State Hospital when it was, the state hospitals were still thriving in California. I went in as this young, idealistic intern. I was going to save the world. Um, and these were severely mentally ill folks, you know, last stop, chronic schizophrenia. And um, so hard because the staff that had been there for so long were so uh, hardened. And our staff rooms, everybody was smoking. and They were, you know, talking. And I, I, I was just blown away. I thought, you're kidding they'd been there for so long and, and had not seen change. And I remember going outside and walking because uh, my father had struggled with psychosis. Uh, at one point, he never got well. Um, he did that way. And he took his life. I was in that internship. It was so hard. I kept thinking my father would walk around the corner. Um, and I remember going outside one day and walking. It was beautiful. Camarillo's beautiful if you've never seen it. Like this, it's gorgeous. And just thinking, God, you know, I can't change these people. I can't heal their psychosis. I went in thinking I could heal psychosis with my Messiah complex. And I thought, well, if all I can do just show up and smile. I was the only female intern on, on a chronic schizophrenic board for male patients. And I just thought, you know, I could make one of their days just by smiling, by being present. So that was an early lesson in presence for me. And it made all the work working with that. Like the bird man, 
So as therapists, the, um, the part of our profession that we often don't acknowledge when we wake up in the morning is actually how much compassion we have in our hearts. You know, we don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm a compassionate person, you know. But we, we have a, we've been gifted, you know, with the desire to turn toward the suffering of our patients rather than to turn away, as is the usual response. So what we're doing here is learning to create a wide container for that experience for ourselves and then as well for others. But I think it's helpful to name to name Deborah's uh, compassion. Extraordinary compassion, Deborah. You know, it doesn't make it any easier, you could say, but it also it's a calling. Those so therapists to open to what we're doing and, and to acknowledge how hard this is. To acknowledge that we have, you know, a, a real reservoir of compassion which is both an obligation as well as a strength. And also that we need one another. 
you know. Everybody needs backup, you know. We need to share the the um, our be an island. Oftentimes I'm reading the Boston Globe with curiosity to see if I recognize any of the names in there that have committed new crimes. And I've had several guys, the next time I hear about them is when, you know, I'm called down to the, our infirmary to assess somebody and it's one of my guys coming back and his new charge is murder. And then he's never leaving again. And I see him and I, I just get tears in my eyes and all I can say is, you know, I'm so sorry to the guys who don't cry, Miss English. I don't want to make you cry. <laughs> but, I, you know, that's with Birdman, that's, that's who, those are my guys. Even people who aren't as uh, impaired as Birdman, you know, uh, you know, all of us, we have um, unrecognized parts unrecognizable parts and we have a hunger that they'll be seen that they'll be touched that they'll be named that they'll be held you know our higher functioning patients in psychotherapy you know each one comes in with a wish you know for something to be known often they don't even know what it is so as Trudy was saying this morning you know can we open the field of our awareness can we take in what's at the fringes of our awareness? And how do we know it, you know? So I'd like to move forward with some more of this talk. So how do, how do we know what's at the fringes of the awareness? You know, we use our own bodies. We say crazy things. We say stuff that bubbles up in our minds after we've checked it out in our with our rational thoughts somewhat, 
because maybe we've had the capacity within our own experience to hold something and feel something that can't be held or felt by our client. Maybe we feel shame arising, and we know that our client is feeling shame, but they can't say it, you know. So how do we know this, you know? So neurologically, we know this through the mirror neurons, you know. How many people are aware of the mirror neurons? Oh, good, everybody. So the mirror neurons, just for those who don't, is are basically they're neurons often in the premotor strip which in which our intentional activity is initiated, intention. And in the insula where we feel our internal experience. And so our muscles kind of mimic what other people are doing and by feeling we basically feel in our bodies what other people are feeling. And then by responding to it, as Dan Siegel would say, then others feel felt. Feel felt. So the relationship that we have with clients is is uh, is wholly unitary, you know. It's wholly unitary. Our neurons are vibrating together, you know. In couple relationships, when when some when one partner says to another, "We need to talk," you know, and then the other one starts to freak out. Why are they freaking out? Because in the tone, they there they there was something going on which contracted inside and it's not about talking it's about i'm mad and i'm going to punish you you know so the mirror neurons are are always active instantly you know so i'll give you an example uh in tricycle magazine there was um uh, a story about a guy named vinnie ferraro uh who as a, as a teenager rang, ran the streets and I'll read, ready to pounce on anybody who didn't belong. Nothing personal, just territorial duty. That night it was a homeless man. They fanned out and surrounded him, and before he knew it was happening, the gang closed in for a ritual beating. Fists, boots, bats, nobody would bother pulling a gun on the bum. And their terrified victim looked directly at Ferraro and started pleading, please help me. Help you, Ferraro said. Why should I help you, you asshole? Because you've got more compassion in your eyes than any woman I've ever met, gabbled his prey. It was a crazy Hail Mary line by any standards, but it hit Ferraro like an uppercut. He was unable to do anything further. Nowadays, Vinnie Ferraro is the training director of the Mind-Body Awareness Project in Oakland, California, using mindfulness and emotional intelligence to help kids get out of a life of drugs and crime, and he attributes the radical change in his life to that critical moment in the flash of an eye where one guy recognized something in this guy, in this young thug. How quickly did it take? You know, it was a flash of an eye. This is the mirror neurons at work. So when we're practicing psychotherapy, you know, why do we want to cultivate a compassionate presence? Because all our cleverness cannot disguise who we are, nor can our cleverness disguise our compassion, you know. So we want to create a wide space so that people who are, who's, who have large parts of themselves who, who are not recognized around us, they are recognized. 
but we can only recognize others when we have the capacity to recognize the full spectrum of our own experience. So throughout the, well, you know, psychotherapy has been around for about 100 years. So throughout these 100 years, we've identified qualities of a psychotherapist. There have been temporary states of mind such as evenly hovering attention, unconditional positive regard, presence, affect tolerance, curiosity, mindfulness. These are considered beneficial states of mind. Then there are more stable traits in therapists that we've dreamed up over the last hundred years, such as secure attachment, good for a therapist to have secure attachment, emotional intelligence, integrity, openness to experience. And then we have relational skills, such as uh, empathic uh, resonance, uh, connection, empathy, congruence, joining, active listening. I was mentioning earlier, I spoke to a student of Carl Rogers uh, who said Carl Rogers was trying so hard to be congruent with his psychotic patients that he would drop acid before he went to the hospital to talk with these people. This isn't the, the kindly old man that we, we're so familiar with. But he was, he was completely committed to resonating or to have congruence with his patients. So, from a mindfulness point of view, we have all these beneficial qualities, qualities of presence, but what is a common process that underlies all these qualities from a mindful, from a mindful point of view? And that is, the, that is a mindful and compassionate relationship to emotional pain. To emotional, to emotional pain. All these qualities can be understood in terms of how do we relate to emotional pain. So we have a new relationship to pain, characterized by a kind of spacious, affectionate awareness, allowing whatever arises in our mental or emotional landscape, allowing whatever arises in our emotional or psychological landscape to be seen, to be heard, to be embraced, and to let go. So translate back to therapy, if we can receive pain with an open heart, there's less incentive to take flight in overthinking or in overworking or in self-absorbed rumination or in emotional entanglement if we can have this kind of spacious relationship to pain. So we can maintain evenly hovering attention because we're less entangled in what we hear. We can have unconditional positive regard because we feel goodwill toward ourselves. We can be moved by the experience of, an, of another because we have the same tender relationship to our own experience and we are moved by our own experience. We can validate how our, how our patients feel because we have the capacity to monitor and validate how we feel. And we can stay connected with our patients because we aren't intimidated by pain as it occurs inside of us, and we can maintain continuity of connection with our own internal experience. So it's an inside job. So then the question is, how does the therapy relationship work from a mindfulness perspective? Okay, now there are many ways to talk about this. I'm sure each person in this room has you know, their own way. So I'd just like to share mine, you know. And that is, from the first session onward, our patients bring us their emotional pain. That's why they're there, you know, too much emotional pain. 
and they are resisting the pain in some way. As I said, what is the patient resisting? What is the patient not resisting? There is a resistance. A patient walks through the door, you assume two things. This person is in pain. They wouldn't take the trouble to do this. And number two, they're fighting it. Okay? What do we do? We, we receive the pain with open eyes, which is mindfulness, and with an open heart which is compassion. Open eyes, open heart. Mindfulness and compassion. But we don't just, you might say, we're not just with the experience. We actually take it in. We actually take it in. Our neurons vibrate together. It becomes our experience. And that's why we need to take you know, breaks occasionally. We take it in. Our patients know if we're taking it in or not. And that's often the measure of how healing and how uh, safe a person can feel. Can this person take it in? Or is, it, is there sort of a shield? You know, we take it in. And then we hold our patient's pain in a non-react, in non-reactive loving awareness. That is to say, we create a non-resistant space for the pain. This is new, okay? Most everybody in the person's life is saying, no, no, no. We take it in, and in our own beings, we have a non-resistant place for holding the, the pain. And then through careful listening and empathic attunement, our clients borrow. They borrow our attitude, our more benign, accepting attitude, and they take it into the world. That is to say, our words go with them. The feeling goes with them. The experience of resonating with our neuro, uh, experience. In other words, when their mirror neurons are feeling us as they talk about their pain, they are instinctively learning a new relationship to pain, a more compassionate and a more mindful relationship to pain. So, as Trudy was saying this morning, that's a compassionate, that's a presence but then we have the hindrances. <laughs> that is to say, what, what uh, the disturbance in the field, you know. And um, uh, so we often, you know, are frustrated. Like the first hindrance is desire. We're frustrated by our desires, and our desires almost always are um, are really benign, gentle, loving naturally human desires that are frustrated and then we get hooked by them you know so as therapists we wish to be helpful you know but sometimes we can't we wish to be um uh we wish to not feel alone with another human being it's it's so natural for us we feel bad when we don't feel alone. I mean, when we feel alone. Furthermore, every human being, because we are sort of tribal pack animals, wishes to be considered favorably in the minds of others. Everyone in this room, we're not, you know, approval-seeking, you know, emotionally immature people. We simply wish to be considered favorably in the minds of others. We wish to be admired. We wish to be seen by our patients. 
Yet, they can't see us. They can't admire us. So we get hooked. Is that a crime? You know? We just get hooked because we're human beings. You know? So we need to... So the hooks, most of the hooks that occur in psychotherapy that impair or interfere with our capacity to connect with our patients or break up the continuity of patients are coming from our simple humanness. So it's all forgivable. You know? So, our task is to notice when we're hooked to get unhooked. So I'd like to read a very short vignette. Maybe it's a page. Take five minutes. A fo- a f- this is uh, uh, how I got hooked in therapy and sort of how that played out. A few months ago, I had a session with Ethan, a very depressed middle-aged guy who returned after a year-long hiatus from uh, therapy. Ethan was going through a divorce and was temporarily, temporarily living in a dumpy apartment with a friend. His business was drying up due to the economy. He was about to lose the house he built because he couldn't make monthly payments. He couldn't sleep. He was losing weight because he had no appetite. His antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications weren't working. Ethan was experiencing the full catastrophe. He had suicidal thoughts but no plan. As Nietzsche said, the thought of suicide is a great consolation by means of which one gets through many a bad night. So I'd known Ethan for about 10 years and had never seen him in such a state. Our previous pattern, when when I saw him earlier, had been to brainstorm together about his life problems. But this time I soon became frustrated because each probing question I raised was met with a web of problems which rendered my efforts meaningless. And eventually Ethan stopped me and asked if I'd grown tired of him. He added plainfully, plaintively, we've known each other for almost a decade. Have you stopped liking me? So that's when I slowed down and decided to just be with Ethan, you know, and to be with myself, right? So I gave up on the rush to fix him. I gave up on the rush to prevent possible suicide. I gave up on my efforts to help him avoid foreclosure of his home. I gave up on my wish to keep him from becoming emotionally disabled. All those things were in the back of my mind, but I said to myself, this is the only moment in our lives Ethan has no one who can see him or be with him besides me right now. It's just Ethan and me. So I surrendered to Ethan's reality and I let it in. And when I did that, I became really overwhelmed. I mean, um, and I became, uh, you know, I, um, I, I, became, I became conscious of how incapable I was of helping Ethan, and that Ethan was probably feeling exactly the same way. So our conversation became much simpler. Ethan said, for example, I don't know what to do. My response Neither do I. I'm really alone here. No wife, no job, nobody. You know, these were kind of provocative questions before. (laughs) And I respond, it's pretty bad, I know. Really bad. 
I'm just so overwrought. I wake up in terror. Terror? Mostly about money, how I'll survive. And so I ask, well, where do you feel terror in your body? Again, going into the physical sensation of terror. He says, right here in my belly, I wake up with a knot in my stomach every day. So I had suspected that Ethan actually felt terror in his body because as this conversation was going, I could feel a knot growing in my own stomach, you know. And so I thought, I'm going to basically shut my mouth and I'm not going to say anything until the knot releases. <laughs> so as I was waiting and he was telling me about what it's like to wake up in the morning, then when I was about to say, well, how would you like to work with this terror that arises? He started then telling me things like, well, he, he first of all, he stopped calling himself a complete failure. And then he started telling me what he wanted to do to stay out of the hospital, such as eating regular meals, going outdoors, um, uh, going to bed when he felt tired rather than staying awake, thinking that if he were stayed awake, he'd come up with some solution that he didn't figure out the previous 16 hours. You know, in other words, he was tormenting himself. So he basically solved his own problems when I stopped trying to solve his problems. And I, I stopped trying to solve his problems because I was obviously... I mean, I was, it was a waste of time to try to solve this problem. So, um, uh, so all of us, in addition to our wish to, you know, these simple human qualities to do the right thing, uh, also have, when the going gets really tough, when we're up against the wall, have uh, negative core beliefs which can get activated by our patients. When things get really bad, there are parts of us which can get activated that we don't like and that make us ashamed. And it's really good to know what they are. Such as, I'm incompetent. I'm fraudulent. I'm stupid. I'm unattractive. I'm angry. I'm defective. I'm unlovable. I'm cold-hearted. I'm narcissistic. All these things. These are all kinds of things which all of us, I mean, I would say I could get, I could go into any of these at any given time. <laughs> but I might have a few favorites, you know. <laughs> yeah. So these are known as our hooks. So Pema Chodron talks about Shenpa. And this is the uh, Tibetan word that uh, she translates as hooks. It means sort of stickiness. And in the case of my relationship with Ethan, I was feeling helpless and incompetent. So we know Shempa by a kind of a clenching of the jaw, a tightening in the abdomen, a sense of shutting down. When Catherine was saying I couldn't listen to my patients anymore, we notice it by when we disappear from the room, you know. And this is all natural, you know. In other words, just like the hindrances, we don't beat up on ourselves for this. We name this stuff with compassion as it arises because we're only human beings. You know? So I was, if we had a little more time, I would, we would do something to sort of dis discover our own sort of, you know, primary suspects in the Shempa department. But, <laughs> but I suspect you're all uh, very... Uh, <laughs> the whole store. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe we, should, we can just assume we've got the store. But it's good to actually name the, the primary suspects for ourselves. You know. Okay, but then the question is, 
how do we work with our hooks in therapy? Or how do we work when, you know, in other words, when we're checking out, when we're freaked out, when we uh, feel bad, when we feel overwhelmed, what, how do we relate to this stuff? You know, in other words, when, if the therapy room were our consultation, uh, I'm sorry, our meditation cell, which Trudy was alluding to earlier, when it is the place where we, in fact, I mean, I really believe this, that we have an extraordinary opportunity to practice all day long, all day long. And, um, and we do, you know. Uh, uh, but we especially do if we allow it to be so. <laughs> if we use it as an opportunity to grow in mindfulness and compassion. So what can we do for when, our, when we feel overwhelmed? So there's um, a practice. First of all, there's, I will talk in a moment about using all the skills, basically the three core skills, concentration, mindfulness, and loving kindness, as a way of sustaining connection with our patients. But that may seem a little complex to some people. So I'd like to offer just a very, very simple exercise, which I think is extraordinary. And it's based on the um, Tibetan practice of Tonglen, which means giving and taking. And which it's actually taking and giving, but it, the, literally it means giving and taking. Uh, in which we use the breath to exchange self and other. Now, typically, this, this uh, practice was developed in the 10th century by a sage called Atisha. And it is completely and totally brilliant. And basically, in the traditional practice, which His Holiness practices every day, we inhale the suffering of others and we exhale the opposite, like loving kindness and goodwill. We inhale the suffering of others. So that's a fairly high practice, you know. We can also inhale our own suffering and exhale goodwill to ourselves. There, there are hundreds of variations of this thing. The brilliance of it is that we use the breath to counteract our instinctive urge to resist discomfort. We're actually inhaling discomfort. Now, many people think that's a little freaky because, you know, aren't we supposed to, you know, like in the New Age world, we should be inhaling good things and exhaling bad things. <laughs> well, actually, in Tonglen, we inhale bad things and we exhale good things. But it is totally, though it may be paradoxically, Paradoxical, it's totally consistent with the healing processes of the brain because it undermines uh, the the fact that what we that undermines resistance, which makes suffering persist. Okay, so we're not going to do it like that. We're going to use the breath, but do something a little different. And that is, when you're in a crunch situation, as Paul Russell says, the great psychiatrist, who was at Mass, Massachusetts Mental Health Center. When we're in a crunch moment, when, the, when you know, the, it's just like everything is really vivid and um, unworkable, then we inhale compassion for ourselves and we exhale compassion for our clients. We inhale compassion for ourselves and we 
exhale. And you can do this without batting an eyelash. Your thoughts can, your, nobody will know what you're doing. Your thoughts can be completely otherwise. So I'd like you just to visualize some difficult situation you've had with a patient in the last month. Now, in does everybody have one? Raise your hand if you don't have a situation. You, oh, you, everyone have a difficult... So easy, isn't it, for us? <laughs> I have five. No. Okay. Yeah. You know, the, just, I guess the idiosyncratic thing about my job is I almost never have problems with my clients. It's the corrections officers. Okay, then, then do the corrections officers. Okay. Trouble. Some crunch moment. Okay? Now... The mindful part of this practice is that we actually recognize this is a crunch moment. This uh, kind of sucks. You know, this is really bad. This is a negative experience. This goes in the category of unpleasant experience. <laughs> so now, just inhale. Think, think of like the person involved, like the warden or whoever it may be, or a patient. And just uh, visualize yourself. Visualize that other person. And inhale loving kindness and compassion for yourself and exhale it for another. Make it very visceral. Just feel goodwill as you inhale, inhale lots of goodwill for yourself and exhale lots of goodwill to the other person. So just do this for a minute. And you can start out by even exaggerating the breath because a good inhale diaphragmatic breath has its own soothing effect. Inhale. And exhale the same goodwill toward that person. In the case of patients, they often scare us. Inhale, goodwill. Exhale, kindness to the person who scares you. Do that at your own pace. Visualize yourself. Visualize the client. Inhale, compassion for yourself. Exhale, compassion for the other person. Okay. I think you get the picture. It's very, very soothing. Very soothing. So this is a way of practicing. Now I'm just going to summarize in three minutes how to apply mindfulness in the same way. Um, in mindfulness practice, we have an anchor, right? It can be the phrases. It can be breath. When things get a little loopy in therapy, your anchor can be your breath, but most commonly... If you're going to be on the job, the anchor of therapy is your patient's pain. Patients come in with the pain. The focus of psychotherapy is the patient's pain. And when we start getting, when we start suffering, in some ways we're, we've actually gone off from the pain. When I have supervisees, they say, I'm so confused, I don't know what's going on with this patient. Very simple question I ask, where's the patient's pain? When you get confused, when you get derailed, when you get hurt, ask, where is the patient's pain? When, you're, when you have a patient who's narcissistically abusing you, where is the pain? Seek the pain. Okay, The pain is your anchor. The consultation room is your meditation cell. The pain is your anchor. Find the pain. When you do that, your mind will start to become still. Yes? Yourself or the, client the, or client's the client's pain. The client's pain. Yeah. Okay. First, you seek the client's pain. Okay. Then, if it's not, uh, if it, um, in, in other words, what we're what we're trying to do is to listen to what, 
mindfulness practice is literally what is most vivid and alive in my experience. For our patients, they're coming in because of pain. So what's most vivid and alive for them is their pain. So what we want to do is to orient what is most vivid and alive for this patient. Actually, sometimes it's not quite the pain, but it's the value system that holds it. But listen, when you notice you're getting lost, refocus on your patient, primarily listening to the pain, what's most vivid and alive. In other words, where does it hurt? If you, you say what's most vivid and alive for yourself. No, first for the patient. First for the patient. When, that, when, when you can't reestablish your awareness that way, then find your own anchor. Go to your own breath. You know, go to the soles of your feet. Go to the feeling of your bum in your chair. Find your own anchor. In other words, single focus awareness stabilizes our attention. Our primary job is to feel the patient's pain, so we don't want to be you know, like thinking too much about ourselves unless we need to. Think about the patient's pain, then think about yourself if that doesn't work. If that doesn't work, okay, so this is concentration. Now, as I mentioned a few days ago, we can't spend all our time in concentration because we got other things to do and there's a lot of compelling stuff going on in the world. So if, you're, if you can't stabilize yourself by paying attention to the patient's pain or to your breath, then open your field of awareness and practice mindfulness. Concentration. Mindfulness. Open field awareness. What? Um, ask yourself... What am I sensing in my body? What am I feeling? See if you can label the emotion. Or what am I thinking? What are some core thoughts going through my mind? Like, oh my God, she's going to kill herself. Oh my God, she's going to kill it. Know it, you know, so name it, label it. That's the next way to use the therapy process as, uh, as meditation, co-meditation, uh, as mindfulness-based therapy. Now, if you're still distracted, okay, so we had concentration practice, single focus awareness, open field awareness, and if you're still distracted, then practice loving kindness. And practice loving kindness uh, if you're intensely disturbed for yourself. May I be safe. May I be, okay, patient's saying they want to kill himself and you're thinking about a lawyer. May I be safe. <laughs> May I be peaceful. May I be healthy and strong. May I learn to handle this with ease. Okay? Now, when you're feeling a little better, or if you're feeling detached from your patient, include your patient in that conversation. May she and I be safe. It's a miracle what happens. We start to feel so whole again. May she and I be safe. May she and I be peaceful. May she and I be healthy. It's a sweet feeling, you know? May she and I live with ease. And what happens then? Our mirror, our neurons become a little different. Patient senses the change. They start to resonate with the same loving kindness that we are having. And we then have reestablished a sense of presence. Sense of presence. And our patients grow through experiencing us in that way. That's enough for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think uh, it's sort of dinner time. It, in the evening, uh, we can, um, on the schedule is to talk about couples therapy. We can either talk about couples therapy or we can speak for a half hour about this material, whichever you prefer. We'll d you, we can decide then. This is great. Yeah. This is good. Yeah. Do this? Yeah. Okay.
Yeah, just a little. Well, a couple still. All right. Okay. We'll have a maybe twenty-minute conversation about this. Twenty-minute co- conversation about couples. Just that point when you know they're not going to make it, and you've worked with them for three years. Just uh, okay. We, we can we can go right to that. We can go right to that one. Yeah. Not a brief confession. Okay. Shall we do a bow and then go to um, dinner? I hear, I smell the food. I think it's out there. Who is the bell ringer? Check if he's ready. Bell ringer. Bell ringer.